0: Good morning. This morning I'm going to introduce our storyteller. But before I do that, uh, it occurred to me that some of you have not heard of storytellers before. You're new today. And so I just want to give you a little context for what our story time is uh, each week. It's not circle time in preschool where we have story time. But what we do each week is we have a member of our congregation or an tender come up and tell us a story. And the purpose of this is for us to get a better connection with somebody that maybe we wouldn't have known before. Uh, These stories can be spiritual in nature, but they can also just be a fun story or something that's happened at some point in your life. And we've heard lots of different kinds of stories over about the past year now. So if you have not been a storyteller and you have a story to tell and everybody has at least one story to tell, uh, contact Pastor Peter or me and we will get you on the schedule. So with that, Randy Kearns is our storyteller today. Randy uh, has been attending our church for about how long now? About a year, year and a half. So she's fairly new, and she's got a great story to share with us. Come on up, Randy, and thank you for being willing to share your story with us.
1: Thank you, Pastor Julie. Hello, family. So my name is Randy, and like Pastor Julie said, I've been here for a year and a half, and I'm from California. I'm going to tell you a little bit about my story, uh, my life story, just a little speck of it. (laughs) Um, I was raised by a single mom. Um, I have no siblings. She was a hippie, and um, she worked all the time. She was a workaholic, and um, I was left with babysitters, and... um, and then as an older child, I was left alone. I was a latchkey kid. So um, anyway, when I was a little girl, um, I suffered uh, sexual abuse from the age of four. That's as, that's as far back as I can remember. Um, and for several different instances in my life, I suffered this different abuses from different people. Um, babysitters, sons, um, my mother's friends, my stepdad's friends, just on and on and on. Um, When I was about eight years old, uh, my mom and I went to a lot of her hippie parties, barbecues and whatnot, where everyone was drinking, smoking pot, whatever. Um, And um, I was about eight years old when I started going around and sipping off of people's glasses. Um, And I like that. And when I was 11 years old, I had my first drunk, um, where I downed a a lot of vodka. And um, for a split second in that time, I felt this overwhelming warm sensation and just this moment of being okay. For the rest of my life, I chased that feeling. Um, I just wanted to be okay. And I wanted to forget all the things that had happened to me. Um, As a teenager, I did not believe in God. Um, My grandfather was a pastor, but uh, they lived in a different state. And I did not believe in God. And um, I believed that if there was a God, you know, How could he allow such horrible things to happen to me and to other people and all of the things that were bad in the world? (sighs) Violence is everywhere, you know? Um, uh, People who seemed normal, you know? My mother was oblivious. People who seemed normal were hurting me. And um, (sighs) I blamed her. I was very uh, hateful towards my mother. And um, she did not protect me. And uh, I actually had told my aunt about one of these instances, and my aunt blamed it on me. And I never shared again um, the the horrible things that were happening to me because I felt like it was my fault. Um, Anyhow, fast forward. Um, I was a punk rocker. And... um, I had lived on the streets for a while in Santa Cruz, California and with a lot of other punks, a lot of other misfits, um, people who were damaged, who had experienced trauma um, and were running away from all of that. Uh, We were like a family. We were our own little band of brothers and sisters and we protected each other. Um, when I was 21, I was pregnant with my son, Simon, and, um, for the first time in my life, I had to think about somebody other than me, and I was scared. I was very scared. Um, his father left me pregnant because I wouldn't have an abortion, and, um, I was terrified. And I was about three months pregnant when something started to happen to me that was, all I can say is, it had to be supernatural. I started praying. Well, I started screaming at the world and at God, whoever God was, if you're real, show me the truth. You know, uh, I, I had no idea where to turn, what to do. I'm bringing another person into this terrible, terrible place. This terrible world that all I saw was bad. And I thought, why would I have this child, you know? Um, How am I going to take care of a baby? I don't know anything about how to do life. I had no moral compass. I had no belief system. I had nothing to offer. Um, And things started happening to me as I was screaming and as I was crying to whoever or whatever God was, um, I had this deep desire one day to go to church. Now, I used to I used to tease Christians. I used to mock Christians. And all of a sudden, I had this deep desire to go to church. And um, I had no idea where to go or what a good church was. But I went in the Yellow Pages and found a church called Harbor Light Christian Fellowship. And um, in Santa Cruz, California. And I went there one time. In that one time, um, there was a huge church with high ceilings and stained glass windows and only about 15 elderly grandmas and grandpas. That was the whole congregation. And um, it was terrifying. (laughs) When I walked in the door... Um, and I was still a punk, so my head was shaved. I I looked horrible, um, you know, black eyeliner all around, and just my makeup was a mess, and my person was a mess. And here I walk into this church with little grandmas and grandpas, and they just came and surrounded me. You know, they welcomed me, they hugged me. It was terrifying. I wanted to run but they just kind of rushed around me and they just kind of pulled me up to this area of seats and I sat down. I sat down with them and they're surrounding me. And I don't remember what that pastor said. I remember his name was Pastor King. I don't remember what he said, but I remember the feeling of walls crumbling. You know, just something was happening in my person Walls were crumbling down, and I was feeling this love for the first time. Um, I never thought this could happen, and um, I didn't know what it was. But things from that point on started changing, and supernatural things started happening to me where I knew it wasn't me, and it wasn't anything I could explain. Um, I got involved with the family through Crisis Pregnancy Center. And um, I lived with them for a while. And um, I learned about child rearing. They had three children. They homeschooled. They were amazing people. So I learned a little bit about child rearing. <sighs> going to fast forward a few years. When Simon was four, and he went into uh, kindergarten. Well, he was five. He was five. When he went into kindergarten, me and my friend Kirsten um, were going to school. I would go on these days. She would go on those days. I would babysit for her, and she would babysit for me. Well, we decided to start drinking. Every now and then, we'd have a beer while we studied or a glass of wine. And that started it again. You know, um, Chaos came back into my life and alcohol took over. Um, I did not, I never actually um, thought that my answer would be in the Bible, you know. But because I had been going to church regularly and I'd been studying the Bible extensively. Um, something stuck right here, and something stuck right here so th- for for several years of chaos and and horrible things happening for several years, I still had it right here and right here. It never left, and he never left me. I walked away. Um, I was in darkness and um, and it, i I came to this place where. For the first time in my life, I knew what it was like to have life and have it taken away, where I was in total darkness. I hated myself. I was self-loathing, and the past just came right back, and I didn't know what to do. Um, When Simon was 14, my last couple of years, or my last three or four years of drinking, I had gotten so bad. That um, he decided to leave. He packed up and he left. He said, "Mom, you come home drunk one more time. I'm out of here." I did, and he left, just like that. And then I'm like, "I don't need him. I don't need anybody. You know, I'll do whatever I want. I'm an adult." And uh, but I've never grown up. I never knew what it was to be an adult. Um, my son, since he was a little kid, was taking care of me. And, um, and as a teenager, he saw me going in and out of mental facilities. I, I had been depressed my whole life. That had never changed my entire life. I was depressed. Um, you know, sure, I had reasons to be depressed, but it was overwhelming depression. Um, since I was a little girl, I wanted to die. And that's all I could think about. And even as a new believer, I wanted to die. Now I had a place to go. I could go to heaven. If I die, I could just go to heaven. I could leave this world. And that's all I wanted to do. And I tried killing myself several times, Um, and um, was in and out of the hospital several times. And then my drinking, I got two DUIs. And uh, within three months of each other. And uh, my life was just out of control. I didn't care about going to jail. I didn't care about dying. I just wanted to be done. And uh, then a, a great day happened. A judge ordered me to go to AA. He said I had to go twice a week. The first time I went was April 3rd, 2006. And that is still my sobriety date. Um, I went to a meeting with a bunch of old guys. There weren't any women, and I was a little bit nervous. I'm like, what's going on? Is this a men's meeting? You know? And uh, they said, no, come in. You know? So I listened to these guys. I thought, what am I going to have in common with them? And every one of them shared, and I listened, and I heard my story in every single one of them. And they had different stories. You know, one of them had been to prison for many, many years. And he was an a, a alcoholic and drug addict. You know, but I heard a little bit of my story in him. Another man was a successful businessman who his life fell apart because of his drinking. I heard some of my life in, in his. You know, I heard my story and everybody's story. And I'm like, wow, if these guys can be sober for this long for as long as they say they have, then maybe, maybe I could do this. So I decided, because I'm an all or nothing kind of girl, I'm going to try this. And so at that time, in a sense, I surrendered. I need help. So I decided I'm going to go every day, and I did. And the next week, I found a sponsor. A sponsor is someone who leads you through the 12 steps of recovery. The 12 steps of recovery are from the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. That was, the program was actually written before Bill, Bill Wilson by the Oxford group, the church. You know, um, you trace it back, and it was God's divine intervention. 70 years of program that was infused with scripture, and the concepts of the Bible. I learned this, and um, I got really strong in the program, and I loved my life. And for the first time in my life, I loved living. Now it's been almost 12 years, and April will be 12 years, and I still love living. You know, I've had problems along the way, but I have not walked away from my faith. And I've tripped and I've fell, and, but I've managed to stay sober. And it's because of the body of Christ and the body of Alcoholics Anonymous that I have been able to keep my faith and serve and help other people, uh, people who have suffered trauma, the homeless, disabled, disabled, uh, youth. Um, and I, I love my life. I have purpose today and all the things that happened to me in my past cannot touch me. It has no power anymore. Now it's power to help the next person. And, um, if you suffer from any kind of mental illness or alcohol or drug addiction, there is help and it's okay to get help. Um, I appreciate the opportunity to share, Julie, and um, and I thank you, and I love you, family. <laughs> this morning, our scripture reading is from the book of Habakkuk. Please follow along in your Bible or use the screens. I'll be reading selective verses from Habakkuk chapters 1 and 2 in the New Living Translation Bible. This is a message that the prophet Habakkuk received in a vision How long, O Lord, must I call for help? But you do not listen. Violence is everywhere. I cry, but you do not come and save. must, Must I forever see the evil deeds? Why must I watch all this misery? Wherever I look, I see destruction and violence. I am surrounded by people who love to argue and fight. The law has become paralyzed, and there is no justice in the courts. The wicked far outnumber the righteous, so that justice has become perverted. The Lord replied, look around at the nations. Look and be amazed, for I am doing something in you, in your own day, something you wouldn't believe, even if someone told you about it. Habakkuk's second complaint, O oh Lord my God, my Holy One, who, you who are eternal, surely you do not plan to wipe us out. Will you let them get away with this forever? Will they succeed forever in their heartless conquests? I will climb up to my watchtower and stand at my guard posts. There I will wait to see what the Lord says and how he will answer my complaint. Then the Lord said to me, Write my answer plainly on tablets so that a runner can carry the correct message to others. This vision is for a future time. It describes the end, and it will be fulfilled. If it seems slow in coming, wait patiently, for it will surely take place. It will not be delayed. Look at the proud. They trust in themselves, and their lives are crooked. But the righteous will live their faithfulness to God, but the Lord is his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. The word of the Lord.
0: Thank you, Randy, for sharing your story. Well, we are in a uh, new series in the book of Habakkuk, and Randy read for us some selected verses from that. We didn't go through all of them because there were too many, but I tried to just get the gist of things in chapters 1 and 2. And our theme is uh, living by faith. So for the next two weeks, we're in kind of a mini-series, which is Two weeks is technically a mini-series. Uh, looking at Habakkuk, one of the 12 minor prophets. Now, a minor prophet is not a prophet that is minor in meaning, but it's minor in length, so it's short. And this book, in particular, is kind of unusual because it's actually a QA and a between Habakkuk and God, kind of similar to the book of Job. Uh, prophetic traditions... And usually the prophet's role is to call the people back to a right relationship with God. But Habakkuk was a different kind of prophet. Instead of confronting the people, Habakkuk confronted God. He wanted to know how God could allow such violence and injustice when God's way is always peace and justice. Habakkuk is dealing with some very deep questions about suffering, sin, sin, and violence. It's contemporary, isn't it? Now we know very little about Habakkuk himself, but it's believed that he was a contemporary of Nahum, Zephaniah, and Jeremiah, and that this was written uh, right after, or right before the Babylonians, that they invaded uh, Israel, Judah. That's the southern part of Israel. Last week we finished the book of Jonah, another minor prophet, who had been sent to Nineveh, which was the capital of Assyria, to bring God's message of repentance to those people, even though those people didn't seem like they were worthy of God's repentance. They were enemies. They were terrible, violent people. And yet, they were still inside of God's grace and love. Now Habakkuk is writing after those Assyrians, the ones that Jonah went to, Uh, had been conquered now by the Babylonians. So how many of you ever played the board game Risk? You know what that looks like. You have empire after empire eating each other up, and that is what this point of history looked like. Now, the three chapters here that we're going to be looking at, one and two today, three next week, is anchored in the theme, Living by Faith. Habakkuk shows us that faith uh, does not have meaning in having all the answers. Faith is not defined by our agreeing with or even understanding what God is doing. So our title message for today is God, do something. You ever say that before? God, Do something, or somebody, just do something. I am notorious for saying this to my husband. Do something. Some crisis happens, and I want action, and I want it now. He's never quick enough. The kids maybe need a discipline. Something needs fixing. Things aren't right, and somebody needs to put them back to the way they should be. Well, Habakkuk's opening words here in verses 1 through 4 I think we can relate to. This book starts out with his first complaint to God, which is about God's apparent apathy in the face of violence and the injustice in Judah. Look at verse 2. How long, O Lord, must I call for help? But you do not listen. When was the last time you said these words or some version of them. Maybe last year. Maybe last month. Maybe this morning. Look at the words in these verses here. It says, "'Forever must I forever see their evil deeds. I watch all this misery, destruction, violence, Who love to argue and fight become paralyzed, no justice in the courts. You know, these verses that are describing what happened in 587 BC are pretty similar to the things that we would be saying today in 2018. I can hardly watch or listen to the news anymore. School shootings, human trafficking, our country so divided, children being abused and neglected. They are just the tip of the iceberg of the injustices and violence that we see and hear about today. Habakkuk also sees similar situations of violence and injustices all around him among his own people. His cry, God, do something, is our cry today. How can a good and loving God do nothing in the face of evil? This is the universal question that we all struggle with, always have, and probably always will. How long can this evil continue? God, why aren't you listening? Don't you care? Well, what's God's response? God's response starts out with something very promising. Something amazing is going to happen. The Lord replied, look around at the nations. Look and be amazed, for I am doing something in your own day, something you wouldn't believe even if somebody told you about it. Finally, God is going to fix all of this. He has this amazing plan to punish the wicked Israelites who have turned from God So that they can turn back to God. Oops, but wait. I am raising up the Babylonians, a cruel and violent people. They will march across the world and conquer other lands. They are notorious for their cruelty and do whatever they like. That's God's plan, that's his answer to Habakkuk's complaint. He's going to use the Babylonians who marched over the Assyrians to conquer his people in Judah now. Can you just imagine Habakkuk's face when he heard this? Let me put it into our modern day time for us. Now, many of us lament that our nation has turned from God, right? We have turned from his ways. And how long can we keep going on this trajectory, many of us wonder. The violence... The racial discrimination, the arguing, the es- everything is escalating to a whole new level. So, what if God heard our prayers? And this is how he answered that. Don't worry, I've got this. I have an amazing plan to punish the evil and stop this in this nation. I am going to raise up the North Koreans to come conquer America. What kind of a plan is that? This reminds me of the phrase, be careful what you wish for, especially with God. Has that ever happened to you? You pray for something, but the answer was not what you expected or even wanted. It appears that God may be doing nothing God's ways are not our ways and his thoughts are not our thoughts and I am reminded of that truth every single day. You may pray for patience and God gives you a huge opportunity for patience. That's not what I wanted, God. I wanted the patience, but I didn't want to have to use it. Or you pray for more faith and something difficult or tragic comes into your life. And God gives you an opportunity to strengthen your faith. Or you cry out to God and you get even worse in your situation. What's going on? If God is good all the time, why doesn't he do good things all the time? I remember a few years ago when my cousin Laura's husband, Rich, was diagnosed with leukemia. He was in his 40s, had kids in junior high and high school, Rich was an uh, pediatric anesthesiologist. Try to say that one in San Luis Obispo. He was a wonderful father. Went on medical mission trips. Everybody loved Rich. As a matter of fact, Rich and Laura, my cousin, are my son Ben's godparents. Wonderful Christian people. Well. He was diagnosed with leukemia, as I said, and he fought that battle for several years and then was able to have a bone marrow transplant. His sister was a perfect match. Clearly, God was going to heal him. Well, we all prayed fervently for healing, and he seemed to be doing fairly well for quite a while. And then on a Saturday, on June fifteenth, two 2011, I got a call from my other cousin, Laura's brother, Scott, and he said, Julie, nobody likes to make a phone call like this, but Rich passed away today. And before he could finish his sentence, I was screaming, no, no, and Barry grabbed the phone from me and got all the details. Rich had been out running that day, preparing for a marathon, because he was a fighter, and he had a heart attack on the sidewalk and died suddenly. I was so angry and confused with God. Had he not heard my prayers and the prayers of so many others? Why did this have to happen? To this day, I ask that question of God because I still do not understand what good came out of that. God has provided for that family, but I still don't get it. I don't see why it had to happen. And I'm sure every one of you has a situation where you are still asking God, why? Why? Well, Habakkuk's question, questions God's plan, his wonderful, amazing plan to have them conquered. And he says here, he starts out by recognizing who God is. Oh, Lord, my God, my Holy One, You who are eternal, surely you do not plan to wipe us out. O Lord, our rock, you have sent these Babylonians to correct us, to punish us for our many sins. He doesn't say, well, if that's your plan, if that's the kind of God you are, I'm finding a new one. No, he recognizes who God is in the situation. He doesn't turn from God in his confusion. He turns to God in his confusion. Because he's not coming from a place of doubt. Habakkuk is coming from a place of trust and faith. He knows who God is, which is why it's all the more confusing as to what he's going to do. Now, I can really relate to this. The fact that I do believe God is all-powerful, I do believe he is loving. I do believe he is kind and compassionate. This is why I have issues with God and what he does. If I doubted what he could do, I would just go, well, he just can't handle that one. He can't do that. But that's not true because God can heal. God can protect God can do the impossible, and I know this to be true, too, because I have seen those miracles, too. So why doesn't he? Habakkuk is confused about God's decision to use an even more unjust group of people to punish Judah. He's basically saying to God, Hey, wait a minute. Those guys, they're worse than us. Isn't this just going to make matters worse? The Babylonians are not reflections of what I know you to be, God. You are holy. They are not. So Habakkuk ends his questioning with a posture of faithful expectation, not passive resignation. Read this last verse here, 2-1. I will climb up to my watchtower and stand at my guidepost. Guard post. There I will wait to see what the Lord says and how he will answer my complaint. He's going to wait. This reminds me that Lent, the season that we are in right now leading up to Easter, is all about slowing down and taking time to reflect on our brokenness and the brokenness of the world. It prepares us to appreciate and rejoice in the miracle of Easter and what Christ did to heal our spiritual brokenness with a plan that did not make sense then either. God coming to earth in the form of a baby, born into poverty, dying on a cross, a criminal's death, taking on the sins of the entire world, past, present, and future, while being sinless himself, and then being resurrected, nobody saw that plan coming. It made no sense. Now, in order to do what Habakkuk did to wait, we need to unlearn our habit of speed and instant gratification. Our world values speed over thought, action over contemplation. In his confusion and frustration, Habakkuk was intentional about making space and time to hear from God. There is a huge shift in his demeanor here, right? He goes from crying out to God to sitting in silence. There seems to be an intimacy between God and Habakkuk. I love that he says, There I will wait and see what the Lord says and how he will answer my complaint. That's faith. God invites our questioning. He listens to our complaints and provides answers, even even those answers that we don't expect or maybe even want. Well, our second reply from God here. We start off with, this is a promise for a future time. He says, this vision is for a future time. It describes the end, and it will be fulfilled. If it seems slow in coming, wait patiently, for it will surely take place. Again, the second reply is for the future. There is not going to be immediate gratification for Habakkuk here. God is saying, I do care, and right is going to prevail eventually. He assures Habakkuk that he has not changed his nature. He has not joined sides with the wicked. It may look like God is doing nothing, but the reality is God is always at work. Wait patiently and live by faith, not by sight, or what you see happening around you now. Verse 4 is really the crux of the entire book of Habakkuk. But the righteous will live by their faithfulness to God. This is what God is saying. And this verse is quoted many times. We have it in Romans. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from last, from first to last, just as it is written... The righteous will live by faith. And in Galatians, clearly no one who relies on the law is justified before God. That would be works. Because the righteous will live by faith. And last, for in just a little while, the coming one will come and not delay. And my righteous ones will live by faith. But I will take no pleasure in anyone who turns away. This last verse here in Hebrews has a lot of echoes from what God told Habakkuk. It says, For in just a little while it won't delay. Living by faith is having faith in a promise, something we do not see yet. And having that kind of faith is what makes a person righteous in God's sight The word righteous in our dictionary, I looked it up, says morally right or virtuous. You see, the world thinks that righteousness is all about what we do and how we act. This is counterintuitive to what God says about righteousness. God's righteousness is all about a relationship, not morality. I love this image. Doesn't that look like a sweet relationship? with God there and this child? Because we are in a right relationship with God, then we can have faith in what we don't see because we know who God is. Now, way back in Genesis, Abram, later known as Abraham, had faith in God's promise of not just a son, but of having many descendants, so many descendants that there were more; they would be more than the stars in the sky when at this point, Abram was childless and elderly. If you read about Abraham, you will see that he failed morally many times, but that did not affect his being righteous in God's eyes. And Abram believed the Lord, and the Lord counted him as righteous because of his faith. It was his faith, That made him righteous, not his works. When you trust in yourself or what you can see, that is called self-righteousness. A truly righteous person has faith in God alone and lives that way. Now, I could do all kinds of morally good things, right? But I could also be not righteous in God's eyes. Because if I'm not in a right relationship with him, all my works mean nothing. Salvation has always been about faith and not works in the Old Testament and the New Testament. So how do we keep the faith when what we see gives us no reason to have faith? Let's come back to the end here, verse 20. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. Habakkuk kept his focus on who God was who he knew him to be, and he knew that God was still on his throne in his holy temple no matter what was going on around him. This is a cool word cloud. It's a lot easier to have faith when we keep remembering what is true. God is the creator. God is holy. He is the redeemer. He is almighty. He is our sustainer. He is the beginning and the end, and it goes on and on. This is what is true, and this is how we keep the faith, and this is how Habakkuk did it. So let me ask you a few questions. What is God doing or not doing right now that's confusing or frustrating to you? Do you have an intentional practice of waiting and listening to God? If not, I encourage you to start that. Find your watchtower and make time to be silent and wait for his response as Habakkuk did. Habakkuk is our example of what a righteous person looks like and how we can live by faith. He was in an intimate relationship with God. Are you? This relationship with God gave him the framework to be able to bring his questions and his complaints to God and even to disagree with God's answers while at the same time remaining faithful to Him. Let's pray. Lord, you are a faithful and righteous God. We thank you that you are at work in our lives and the world, whether we see it or not. God, we ask that as we bring our questions and frustrations to you, we would live by faith and know that you are a just and merciful God. You are still in your holy temple. We pray these things, Lord, in your name. Amen.